I have a vivid memory of what it felt like in the week before the November election 2016. The buzz was that Hillary Clinton had a great shot at winning the election. My friends were full of the rumor that it would be close, but definitely a Clinton victory. What do you do if you want to help? Well, I lived in Los Angeles, California. California was definitely going for Hillary Clinton. So I got in my car and I drove to Las Vegas, Nevada to help precinct walk and turn out the vote for Hillary in what was obviously a swing state. I walked into the uh, headquarters of the campaign. They took one look at me, a white guy in his 60s, and assigned me to the heart of the black community in Las Vegas. I'm not sure my precinct walking that day was the most effective, but I walked the entire day. And at the end of the day, I decided to go out to dinner and congratulate myself on a job well done. I was just about to sit down to dinner when I got a phone call from my wife who told me that Florida had come in for Trump and that it was now impossible for Hillary Clinton to win the election. It was over. Donald Trump was president of the United States. How could this have happened? I think that's the question that was asked by tens of millions of strong Democrats like myself across the nation when Trump was first elected. Um, It was stunning. We were rocked on our heels and baffled. A few months later, it felt like a few days later, a book was published by a woman named Joan Williams, who I'd never heard of before. And the title just rocketed off of the shelves, White Working Class. This was Joan Williams' take on what had happened in the 2016 election. And she, she barred no holds and laid it out in her own way. Let me give you just a few snippets from the very first pages of that book to give you a flavor of what she was doing. And I quote, Over the past 40-odd years, elites stopped connecting with the working class, whom prior generations had given a place of honor. Think of the idealized portraits of noble blue-collar workers in post offices around the country, painted by artists of the Federal Art Project of the Works Progress Administration during the 1930s. During an era when wealthy white Americans had learned to sympathetically imagine the lives of the poor, people of color, and LGBTQ people, the white working class has been insulted or ignored during precisely the period when their economic fortunes tanked. The typical white working class household income doubled in the three decades after World War II, but has not risen appreciably since. The death rate for white working class men and women aged 45 to 54 increased substantially between 1993 and 2013, a reversal from the decades before. And in 1970, only a quarter of white children lived in neighborhoods with poverty rates of 10%. By 2000, 40% did. In an era when the economic fortunes of the white working class plummeted, elites wrote off their anger as racism, sexism, nativism, beneath our dignity to take seriously. This has led to politics polarized by white working-class fury. We're voting with our middle finger, 
said a Trump supporter in South Carolina. To be clear, I do not focus on hollow-eyed towns gutted by unemployment and the opioid epidemic or despair deaths of white men with high school educations or less. To focus on white working-class despair will lead well-meaning people to approach the white working-class as they traditionally have approached the poor, as those, quote, we have a moral and ethical obligation to help, end quote, to quote a well-meaning colleague. This attitude will infuriate them and only widen a societally unhealthy class divide. Instead, I focus on a simple message. When you leave the two-thirds of Americans without college degrees out of your vision of the good life, they notice. And when elites commit to equality for many different groups but arrogantly dismiss the dark rigidity of fundamentalist rural America, this is a recipe for extreme alienation among working-class whites. End quote. That was in the first four pages of Joan Williams' book. She went on from there for another 125 pages. Joan Williams is a person who thinks we Democrats have abandoned the same people who once were the party's absolute bedrock base. But that was in 2016 and 2017. Has there been progress within the party and within the country since Williams first penned her attack in 2017? Has anything changed? And what about Joe Biden? Will Joe Biden be able to rebuild the trust of working people? Will Biden be able to keep the new elite, the college-educated, in the party and add to them the regained non-elite working people? It was time to ask Joan Williams to revisit her ideas of 2017, so I invited her on the political conversation. So welcome uh, to the political conversation, uh, Joan Williams. Delighted to be here, Wally. Clearly, we want to talk about uh, your remarkable 2017 book published just four months after the election of Donald Trump. But I, almost on a personal basis, just have been hankering to ask you what the spark was for that. Um, Obviously, the election of 2016 But was there an incident or a moment when you said to yourself, I really have to do this? Well, there's a a long answer and a short answer. The the short answer is that I was at an election um, night party, the night that Trump got elected over in Marin County. And when Florida went to Trump, I like, I like left the party. I couldn't bear it anymore. My husband was in China, so he wasn't here. And so I just, I sat down and um, started writing the book. Um, well, it was writing first the uh, the Harvard Business Review article that eventually went viral. And I had, I had been, I mean, the longer answer is I've been thinking about social class for over 40 years because I married, um, I was born to a German Jewish slash New England wasp family in the Northeast and married a uh, into a uh, blue collar family of over 40 years ago. And when I did that, I was just 
stunned um, to realize the cultural differences between my parents and my husband's parents. And I always tell the story of my husband's mother, who is still alive, God bless her, she's uh, just about to be 100. And um, when she, one of the first times she visited us, uh, we were cleaning up after supper and she said, um, where do you put the butter? And I said, oh, under the bed. She thought it was so weird. She went and put the butter <laughs> under the bed. That's how big <laughs> the culture gap was. And um, so I had sort of had this um, double consciousness for a really long time, um, being a member of the elite, born um, a member of the elite, but also uh, understanding that there was a whole other group of people who just had a set of intuitions that were totally different. And so I had been writing about social class for um, 25, 25 years. But I hadn't really upset, and I looked at what, what Democrats were doing, and I was going like, Lord, send me patience. This is not going to end well. And then, but I realized that what I would say would be very unpopular with my fellow San Francisco progressives out here. But when Trump won, I just thought like, okay, I'm gonna just going to let it rip. I don't care if I'm uncomfortable. These things have to be said, and I'm, I'm just going to say it. So without me pushing further, I, I think it would be helpful if we just discuss the 26, I call it the 2016 book, if you don't mind, because it, it was so 2016. Um, just lay out for me what you think the major point you wanted to make in that book was. Um, that a lot of what drove people to Trump were... Um, mistakes that were being made by Democrats and on the left. And they were mistakes that um, were inconsistent with um, our ideals as Democrats and as progressives, and um, that they would be pretty easy to remedy if we got our act together. So in reading your book, um, the beginning of it, if I'm doing this from memory now, and obviously I refreshed my memory before this, but nonetheless, um, in the beginning of it, it doesn't begin focused on the Democratic Party. It talks about society, and um, it talks about two social classes. Um, and I've, I'm a Democrat, and I have the same concerns you do, uh, about the party, but I found that part Im really important and really important to get and to understand uh, in order to transition to a serious discussion about our party. Um, lay it out for us, if you would, with the difference between the elites and the working class. Yeah, um, I've actually stopped using the term working class because it's proved so confusing to people. Mm -hmm. um, there have been a whole series of studies that show that it, it was not um, the the working class did not in fact vote for Trump. Um, the it gets pretty wonky, so I will save your listeners the wonkiness. But basically, uh, the easiest flaw to explain is the study that counted people um, who earn less than fifty thousand dollars and over fifty thousand dollars, and said that richer people actually voted for Trump and the working class tended to vote for Democrats. Well, the 
the there's there are now very elegant studies. There weren't then. There are now that show that it's really middle status voters in routine jobs that are precarious, but they haven't lost them. Those are the people who support far-right populism, both in Europe and in America. It's these middle status people, the fragile and failing middle class that um, is flocking to far-right populists. It's not the poor and it's, um, it's not, you know, and the, the rich, you know, there's a certain conservative element of the rich that also is voting for far right populists strategically. But the people who who they're they're channeling are these middle status voters. And does that also mean that I mean, the title of your book in 2016 was white working class, which just leapt uh, off the bookshelves. It hit, it hit you right between the eyes. Uh, are you saying that the word white really isn't, uh, what, what's going on there is no longer a white That wasn't issue? my title, of course. That's not the way titles happen. Oh, is that, I didn't know. <laughs> no, 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 that's not the way titles happen. And it also wasn't um, the uh, the original article in Harvard Business Review talked about the working class, the U.S. working class, whereas I was really there talking about the white working class. This also has is where the debate is really um, is really shifted since 2016. It has now become apparent that in um, since 2016, in every um, both the presidential and the midterms, the congressional elections, um, there has been shifts towards the far right by every group of these middle status people, including people of color. Latinx is the most dramatic, um, but there is a diploma divide now between college grads and non-college grads across race. Um, and that is uh, that is something that is now very, very well established. Well, before we get into the details on that, I think it, it would be important for us to dwell on your original discussions. Um, but then let's put a parenthesis around that, if you would, and, and let's come back to that because it, it is an emerging part of uh, the, the political debate um, inside our party that we really do need to understand. Take me back to 2016 and and walk us through uh, your your view of the class situation. Yeah, um, there's there's really a broken relationship between global cosmopolitan elites and these middle status voters across developed economies. Um, there are two very different class cultures. Um, the global elites are very focused on self development um, and. Um, therefore, they're very focused on political issues that um, that signal that are tied to career self-development and sexual self-development. The two most obvious examples are abortion rights and LGBTQ rights. Those are very central to um, uh, central concerns to the cosmopolitan globalized elites because those. Um, the, the entire class culture is focused around self-development uh, because that's what we need to succeed in our jobs and all of the hydraulic performance pressures that we put on our children to make sure that they're successful, um, uh, by which we often mean literally getting into Harvard, um, um, that they 
so that is kind of the central logic of life in the elite. And um, the central logic of life, life in, for these middle status voters is very different. It, they're focused not on self-development. How could they be? It would be incredibly frustrating for them. That's not how they raise their kids because they'd raise their uh, raise kids to be unhappy because self-development often isn't on offer to them. Um, so they they raise their kids to be successful in the kinds of jobs that they will get, namely, um, ideally for the guys, blue collar jobs, and for the women, uh, it's often pink collar jobs. And what do you need in those jobs? Well, you may be if you're disruptive in the elite, you may end up with a billion dollars. But if you're disruptive in these middle status jobs, you just get fired and end up as a street person. And so they're focused not on self-development. They're focused on self-discipline, the kind that gets you up every day without an attitude to a often not very fulfilling job for 40 years straight. Um, and therefore, these middle status voters also are, are very, um, very bonded emotionally to traditional institutions that anchor self-discipline, religion, the military, um, family values. And so there, there's also from social psychology, the fact that uh, well documented that middle status people tend to be more conservative than either high status people who can hang it out there, take a risk, and it really won't hurt them in the long run, or low status people who have nothing to lose. So why not take the risk? Middle status people tend to be quite risk averse and quite conservative for structural reasons, for reasons related to their place in the economy, not to sound too Marxist for a minute. Um, the, uh, on that riff, let me just end by saying that when people, when I talk about the importance of social class and the diploma divide in American politics, people often assume I'm sort of an old-fashioned leftist um, Marxist of like the only thing that matters is economics, everything else is an epiphenomenon. Uh, I'm not one of those people. I've done studied race and gender for most of my professional life. Um, but that I, I'm really coming out of the the class as culture tradition that started with this French sociologist named Pierre Bourdieu. So let me ask you about another another intellectual. Your book reminded me uh, very much of a book that had a tremendous impact on on me. I mean, literally impact, and that was Christopher Lash's Revolt of the Elites. Um, are are you familiar with that work? I haven't read it in many years, but it had a, an impact on me at a certain point. Yeah, I don't recall him. Uh, the title says that his focus was the elites, um, and I don't recall him getting deeply into other class analysis. But uh, very much the same, uh, very much the same concerns. So I just wanted to to check with you if I'm if I'm seeing that correctly, or do or do you see yourself as having a distinctive take? different than Lash took. It, it is different. It's different from um, Christopher Lash. It's different uh, in in contemporary times from Roy Tejera, for example. Mm -hmm. um, um, Roy Tejera, and I think Christopher Lash is sort of cut of the same cloth, it argues that, yeah, there is a broken relationship between elites and non-elites, and the solution is <clears throat> to focus on economics and 
<coughs> excuse me, um, not focus on um, cultural issues. And, and if I remember Lash correctly, he also expressed uh, a lot of nostalgia for traditional gender roles. Well, the single most um, dominant theme in my career has been to challenge traditional gender roles. And I have spent the last 15 years studying how gender and racial bias play out in everyday workplace interactions and how racial and uh, gender hierarchies play out at work. So I am not, I do not have the same nostalgia for traditional gender roles. I do not have the same solution that we should abandon things like abortion rights and focus just on blue collar economics. I'm quite an in, uh, implausible messenger. I do not have the the solution that the Democratic Party should win, win back working class votes by becoming moderate. I'm not a moderate. Um, I think the neoliberalism built into um, traditional, you know, moderation as we know it from Bill Clinton on is part of what got us in this pickle. Um, I don't think it's the way out. I think it was the way in. Well, let's let's take that directly as a, as a, a lead into the the topic I wanted to discuss with you next, and that is let's just turn to talking about. Uh, let me just be blunt. Our party, the Democratic Party, and um, lay out for me where you see the failings were. Well, um, <clears throat> I mean, I think that um, the Biden administration has done actually a lot of things right that they often don't get credit for. They have really sustained a focus on blue collar jobs um, all the way through the CHIPS Act to the Inflation Reduction Act. There's uh, The other thing that they have done in Inflation Reduction Act is re-messaged climate change as a Blue, uh, an opportunity to create the blue collar jobs of the future and the and, um, uh, having a sustained commitment, not on um, elites kind of performing purity of like, I, uh, I, you know, I picked up my, um, my towel uh, uh, from the floor of my four star hotel to that we have to have make if we're really going to make progress on climate change, it has to make household sense. And so you have the subsidies for heat pumps and other things that try to make climate change into household sense for ordinary non-elites. Um, so those are some of the things that that the Biden administration has done right. The infrastructure bill, for example, um, but. I what I we still have this cultural gap between elite progressives and um, many far many of these middle status voters. So I think the Democratic Party really hasn't been able to harvest a lot of the potential benefits from some of those successes of Biden's first two years because we still have this steady drumbeat of comments and um, ways of conceptualizing politics that are very off-putting to these middle status voters. Can you make that graphic for us? Um, well, I, I mean, you just think about <clears throat> the 
um, idea. I mean, let's just do it in terms of climate change. This actually stems from a, I've just recently launched a new initiative called Bridging the Diploma Divide in American Politics. Um, the website is www.diplomadivide.org. And one of the things I do in there is I have messaging do's and don'ts um, for by different subject area. And let's think about climate change. Um, uh, the do's for climate change are message climate change as a wonderful source of um, good new blue collar jobs, um, talking to about how farmers can no longer farm um, the same, their farms the way their grandfathers did because of climate change. Talk about the opportunities for hard-strapped farmers to earn extra income through solar farms and wind farms. Those are all ways of talking about climate change um, that, that uh, beckon in these middle status voters. Ways of talking about climate change that just alienate these middle status voters that we need, by the way, to pass climate change measures uh, are talking to talking about people as ignorant climate deniers, talking about people as <clears throat> ignorant science deniers, uh, talking about the climate crisis as if anybody who doesn't agree with you on priorities surrounding climate change is just a pathetic, ignorant person rather than someone uh, this is actually, this played out, interestingly enough, in France in the so-called yellow, yellow vest movement, where one of the protesters said, elites are focused on the end of the world, we're focused on the end of the month. Um, and that, that class dynamic takes place in the United States as well, where um, I think, you know, it would be a very, it's very important for climate advocates, and I count myself as one of them, to assume that if people don't agree with us, it's because they're afraid about the, I mean, not, not the oil industry executives, of course, but um, these middle status voters, they're very concerned about the loss of, of blue collar jobs and that they um, they feel that we should, I mean, elites, you know, the, in recent years, in my parents' generation, elites were very focused on, um, on blue collar jobs, but my crowd isn't at all. They couldn't give a fig um, about the loss of blue collar jobs. Uh, and these middle status noters, voters know and Trump you know not a fan of course but he talks a lot about um blue collar jobs he talks about them as valuable he talks about them as dignified he says he's going to bring them back um that's a lie he didn't he lies a lot as we know um but we don't want to have people who are feeling really bereft that they've lost a stable middle-class standard of living, finding only Trump to connect with. That's crazy enough. That's crazy talk. So we, you started out talking uh, very soon about Joe Biden's uh, initiatives and how they address uh, a, number, a number of your concerns. And I've been struck by that as well. And by Biden constantly... Uh, without interruption, consistently, and year from year, and month to month, and week to week, talking about the importance of jobs that do not require a college education. He cannot give a sentence or a speech uh, about a new plant or a new program without getting that in. 
and uh, it's really remarkable. I can't even <laughs> I can't even remember Donald Trump who caters caters to the to that who who has done as as effective a job along those lines. Um, and if I can but, just ride a hobby horse for a minute, please do. Donald Trump screws the blue collar guys he works with. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Why don't we hear about that all the time? All That's the just time. malpractice. <laughs> That's just political malpractice. I remember back to the era, which really is minutes ago politically, in which getting a college education seemed to be everybody's solution to whatever economic problems there were, especially those of working middle class. And um, I, I looked at that and, and just was never completely convinced of that. But I noticed recently, and this took me really by surprise, that the, the college enrollment in the United States has peaked. It peaked in 2010, and it's been going down every year since then. Um, folks are wondering what's going on. Uh, clearly, high college costs are a big part of the issue. I think in your book, at one point, you summarized uh, the class differences toward college. Correct me if I'm wrong on this, please. But um, to, the, to an elite young college student, college means they continue the family tradition of being in the elites to a working class or middle class kid. It, college means you're going to come out with a lot of debt. And, and then we wonder why um, folks don't rush to get enrolled in college. Well, that's true. And they also, to, to a family like mine, going to, I mean, <laughs> I come from a family where we we have five generations of lawyers and four generations of uh, uh, in a row going to Yale. So we're in a serious rut. Doing that is part of carrying on the family tradition. But um, for a blue collar person um, or any non-elite person coming to Yale, uh, your family tends to be I, I teach a lot of first-generation college students, uh, law students, actually, who were first. I teach a lot of law students who are first-generation college students, first person in their family go to college. And their families tend to be both very, very proud of them and a little hurt, like uh, wasn't what we could offer enough. Um, and they're, they're often what I, I call class migrant guilt because these people are making a migration from one class culture to another that is often far more like a migration from a different country than it is the way that, like my experience of going to college. My life experience is, is a little bit different. Chauffeurs, cooks, servants, secretaries, um, were the bulk of my, my family's background, and I am your classic class migrant, first kid to go to college. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a, uh, I'm a silver spoon girl, born and bred. <laughs> well, uh, you know, maybe that plays a role in how accurate your dissection of elite mentality is. 
Yeah, well, a very early boyfriend of my uh, of mine, I I quote quote this. He he was his family was originally working class, and when he brought me home to dinner, he said his father commented, "She looked at us like an effing anthropologist." <laughs> <laughs> Didn't say effing either. This was a worry. This is a working class ethic. So it was really a, yeah. No, there is that, but the the ad, I think that's one thing, Wally, that's really changed since 2016 when. I wrote the book and then went around on Capitol Hill and talked to people about it. Um, the, the statistic that I had in the book that two-thirds of Americans had not graduated from college, people found mind-blowing. And, and I can't tell you, not one, but several senators and congresspeople said to me, do you know that two-thirds of Americans don't graduate from college? I'm going, yeah, mm -hmm, yeah, it's really important. Uh, I think that now there has been a kind of it running through our heads uh, of many, many in the progressive elite that um, we can't just rely on college as a way to people to offer people a path to a stable family life and personal dignity. Because, you know, even if it doesn't work, it, it didn't work. We tried it for 40 years. It didn't work. And now, uh, especially especially these middle status men are very reluctant to go to college because um, gender norms are still very traditional throughout for men throughout society, including in blue collar families. And marrying a guy with a big debt and no current income is not the, seen as the most attractive marriage partner. So men feel under a lot more pressure than women to get out into the workforce and start earning money, which of course um, really, really penalizes an economy <clears throat> that pushes anyone without a college degree to the margins, which is what we have today. I think David Otter at MIT has, has done work along those lines to show that what you just said really does make a lot of sense. And when you think about the lives people live, um, the whole question of what what kind of a guy is marriageable is a big issue. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's true both in the elites and in non-elites that um, we're a lot more traditional when it comes to gender roles than we like to admit to ourselves. So one thing I wanted to explore with you is this. We've been talking about the, uh, the difficulties of uh, the middle. And, um, and, and I think so far we've been sort of lumping college graduates into an amorphous elite. But as I talk to young people today, and I'm not getting this out of the scholarly stuff. This is uh, young people who I've met and discussed things with. There is a, and young college, let me just hasten to say, young college graduates, bright, intellectual, um, very upbeat in many ways, but very pessimistic about simple things like the old-fashioned American dream. So many um, young people these days are absolutely convinced they will not have their own home. They will simply not have things that, uh, well, my folks um, took for granted uh, and, ra and, ra and raised me to take for granted regardless of going to college. Um, let's spend a moment on that. You're, you're dead right. I always say the single wisest economic decision I ever made was being born in 1952. You're brilliant. Brilliant. 
Yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, just shows my inherent talent. Um, and the, uh, this is another um, lost opportunity for the Democratic Party. Uh, the American dream is on the wane, as we know, um, that um, that uh, from Roz Chetty's work, it used to be that basically every American um, uh, did better than their parents, and now only 50% do. The other 50% are really ticked about that. This is an important point. Could I just ask you to pause for a moment and explain to folks listening who Raj Chetty is and, and what, he, what he's what he been venturing into? Raj Chetty is the, one of the most important economists alive today. He documents really elegantly income inequality and the growing income inequality in the United States and um, the waning of the American dream. The American dream is that you know you'll you'll do better than your parents, and um, it's the Ameri people feel uh, this is the the profound role of income inequality in fueling, ironically, the far right, who typically does nothing to alleviate income inequality. Totally get that, but. Um, people are very, they're bereft at their loss of the American dream. Um, this is particularly true of middle status voters. Um, if you're holding on to our routine, if you get fired from a routine job, then, you, then, you're, then you're much more progressive. But if you're holding on to one for dear life, then you tend to be very conservative. Um, and so um, the, the, the squandered opportunity for the Democratic Party is that income inequality has now gotten so bad that college grads are affected by it. Um, I mean, out here in San Francisco, most young people I know are moving away, including my two children, are moving away from San Francisco because they could never afford a house in San Francisco. Um, and that, that so there's a lot among college grads as well uh, who aren't destined for the sort of high business elite. They are different category. But for the other college grads, the college grads who want to be teachers or public interest lawyers or work for the government, they also are losing touch with the American dream. Um, and that's a lot of anger resultant resulting from income inequality and what the dems should be doing is marrying the anger of the college grads with the anger of the non-college grads unfortunately a lot of what the dems have been doing is um is talking about free college tuition and you know uh, hey i've been a professor for over 40 years but that is pretty much a gift to the right, because you have a lot of people who've paid through the teeth for not graduating from college because they thought it was too expensive. And now their attitude is fine, you're going to tax me so some rich kid can go to college for free. It is um, the, the, the class dynamics of free college tuition is something that are rarely, rarely recognized. Well, you're really not afraid of uh, offending some stereotypes, <laughs> some conventional wisdoms of the Democratic Party, are you? Yeah, I'm not even saying where we should come out on free college tuition, but I'm saying we should understand what the class dynamics are. Uh, I couldn't agree more. Let, let me d just dive straight into a, a central issue that 
this podcast has been paying attention to. And uh, I've interviewed a series of very prominent uh, economists, Danny Roderick, David Otter, uh, Duran Osimoglu, Brad DeLong, on the middle class issue. And um, putting Brad DeLong aside for the moment because he has some distinctive views, um, the rest of the folks... I'm going to just categorize them in a lump sum and pardon me to them if I offend them in any way. But there's a new focus on moving past the neoliberal consensus that capitalism would solve all problems as long as it went global and to move toward a new sense of uh, an industrial policy for the country uh, and to move in that direction in general, with much variation among folks. Have you thought about that and the role that plays in the kinds of concerns you see? It is very far from the pure cultural issues you're, you've been focused on, but you're well aware of this, I know, from your writings, and I, I wonder where you are on that. Well, I mean, I think it's very helpful. Uh, it's very healthy development. I mean, basically what Biden has tried to do is establish industrial policy. Um, and we hadn't had industrial policy for decades because of kind of a new neoliberal anti, uh, uh, belief that capitalism um, unleashed was going to be the key to wealth for all. Well, Capitalism Unleashed was not the key to wealth for all. It was the key to the demise of the American dream. <laughs> um, and um, in order to uh, balance the economy with um, not just producing the maximum G GDP without regard to um, distribution and without regard to giving voters a stable middle-class life, which is what the voters want. Um, that is, it's turned out, neoliberalism has turned out to be, you know, kind of a bit of a disaster. I mean, how people thought that pitting, um, allowing large companies to pit American workers against um, workers in less much less developed countries was going to end well for american workers it now escapes me i'm not an economist but it did not end well for american workers and it is not inevitable that um we had we lose manufacturing jobs to such an extent after all germany didn't and the reason that germany didn't is that they realized that losing that reaming middle status voters was one of the things that led to hitler um, it really empowers the far right. Um, so, yeah, neoliberalism plays a big, big part of this. The other thing that's so been interesting to me is that since I've been talking, thinking about um, race for such a long time, in addition to class and gender, we used to talk about race as if it was a geographical issue, the urban issues, when we really meant the racial issues. Um, and now we um, talk about class, again, as if, as if it's a ge geographical issue, the rural-urban issue. No, we're really talking about the, um, the one-third of the economy uh, that um, 
voted, I know the one, I can't remember, one third of the counties that voted for Hillary Clinton represent, what was it? I can't remember now, two thirds of economic growth. The yeah. Two thirds of the counties represented only one third. Um, these uh, class anger issues are etched into geography. That doesn't mean they're just geographical issues. They're class issues, but they're expressed geographically through the the uh, the um, ocean of red in the middle of the country with the blue coasts and then little blue dot college towns in between. I the Biden efforts are I, I agree with you dramatic and and important, but we have a long way to. If, if this this is me being very cautionary. <laughs> we have a long way to go. At least at least it's on the agenda. It's been a drop yes. in the bucket, and the the reason it's a drop in the bucket is because. You know, presidential and congressional elections are now being decided by the number of people who could fit into a good-sized football stadium. Um, you can't really make dramatic uh, many, you know, you're really limited in what you can do. And my solution for Democrats is to win back enough of those middle-status voters so we can actually put some of these things on the ground, both for college grads and for non-college grads alike. Well, let me use that as a segue to a a topic that doesn't exactly fit, but I sure want it to. <laughs> and that is uh, an essay that you wrote recently on John Fetterman and his race in Pennsylvania. And uh, it's it, it really uh, struck me. And I rather than me tell you what you wrote, um, give, a, give us a sense of why you thought talking about John Fetterman and his particular Democratic victory in Pennsylvania was an important topic. Very important. It was a very important topic. Um, I mean, I'll back up. Um, Ed, Tom Edsel wrote an essay basically saying the Democratic Party is, is a fight between progressives and moderates. And guess who won us the midterms? It was the moderates. Um, and Tom Edsel is? Tom Edsel is a very famous commentator who has written, bopped back and forth between the Washington Post and the New York Times. Um, and um, I think that's a flawed analysis. Um, I think the just go moderate analysis is not the direction the Democratic Party needs to go. And the, the midterms did not show that. Um, and Fetterman is the, is um, a really good example. John Fetterman, who, of course, is a successful candidate for senator of Pennsylvania, the only seat that we flipped from red to blue, senatorial seat. And, if, and let me also add, won it by a solid five percentage point margin in a race that really could have gone different ways. After he had such a severe stroke that he had real challenges speaking. Um, no, so this is really an, a stunning victory. What he did is he called he he forged a cultural connection to uh, blue collar masculinity, which of course appeals not only to blue collar men but also to blue collar women. Um, he did that partly by enacting blue collar masculinity. He had the tattoos. And not hipster tattoos, you know. He had the tattoos. He wears um, working men's clothes. He doesn't engage in fancy talk. That was one of the reasons why his stroke didn't hurt him, because his his one of his uh, he was not, you know, art articulate like Obama. He was very direct, down earthy talk 
talk just the way blue collar lies guys talk. Um, and um, he uh, he also Fetterman also flipped on fracking. He said, you know, I was opposing fracking, but if we can save jobs in Pennsylvania by fracking, I, I support fracking, although I also support um, uh, vigorous climate change initiatives. Um, and so Fetterman did what was, was this going moderate? Well, he did compromise on fracking, but a lot of it was just personal style, Wally. He was enacting blue collar masculinity and he did not go moderate on a lot of things. For example, he was extremely active as lieutenant governor of um, Pennsylvania in, in getting um, uh, uh, incarcerated men, typically black men, out of prison and giving them a second chance. And was vigorously attacked by his opponent, his Republican opponent. He was. spent spent millions of dollars on the airwaves telling people all about that. That's right. That's right. So, um, and Fetterman is is very progressive on most every issue um, uh, other than the fracking thing. But he's very progressive on... Uh, a whole range of other issues. And that's really a model for the Democratic Party. It's not go moderate, uh, a la Democratic Leadership Council circa 1990. That is neoliberalism. That's what got us into this mess, um, or one of the things that did. It is figure out a way to forge a cultural connection with these middle status blue collar voters and be very consistently progressive on economic issues focused on um, a, econ- a stable middle-class life for people without college degrees, and then um, uh, choose also from the cultural, choose carefully among the cultural issues beloved to me uh, as a progressive and a feminist um, uh, uh, choose carefully among those issues which you are going to give to the elites, the progressive elites, and which you are going to just have a low, lower profile on. To me, that's not being a moderate. That's just being really smart and understanding how to navigate class politics in the U.S. and still come out with a progressive conclusion. So you've spoken about Joe Biden. Um, other than Biden... Who in American politics these days, you think, fits the profile you just sketched? Well, I mean, I've been looking at all of the people also in the House that flipped red to blue. um, And a lot of them have that same Fetterman formula of forge a cultural connection with middle status voters, um, be largely progressive, um, but choose your battles. Um, so I think all of those, we should look, be looking at all of those people who flipped um, uh, red to blue. And then people like Gretchen Whitmer, who um, is, was very blue um, and run, won in what has traditionally often been quite a red state. Um, there's also one, uh, I think, visionary um, guy out here, so, uh, Con- Congressman Ro Khanna. Um, of California, who has been very focused on forging alliances between Silicon Valley and um, Red America to create new jobs deep in Red America. 
my personal favorite among the due crew of Democrats um, is uh, Marie Guisenkamp uh, Paris, um, and who uh, walked away from her work as a owner of an automobile repair shop in uh, the Washington state <clears throat> and ran for Congress and was told by all the experts it was impossible. You'll never get the Democratic nomination. And then after she got the nomination, was told by all the experts, we can't spend money to support you. You'll never win the election. And she won <laughs> and is in Congress these days. Yeah, that's that, that's amazing. I will definitely look her up. She's well worth well worth looking up. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think the formula is very clear. Forge a cultural connection with blue-collar voters right now. You know who's doing that? Tucker Carlson, Fox News, Donald Trump. We got to contest that. And then um, be very consistent on the demand for good blue-collar jobs um, for uh, people without college grads and climate change, climate change infrastructure is a central part of that. Um, and then um, be check, choose your uh, the cultural navigate the cultural issues carefully, understanding that um, blue collar voters tend to be more traditional, more religious, um, uh, more risk averse than elites do for structural reasons. Um, am I going out on a limb by saying structural reasons is another way of saying good reasons, reasons people have to take account of? Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, uh, being, um, being disruptive and focusing on self-development is awesome for the, the, the tech guys out here. It works very poorly if you don't have that level of privilege. Well, thank you for joining us. Thank you for your interest, Wally. I really appreciate it. I love to talk about this stuff, um, and I get far too few opportunities to do so. I began the podcast asking if uh, Joan Williams had changed her mind on any of the points she made back in 2017, and she came right out and said very clearly that she thought that her diagnosis that the white working class had voted for Trump and delivered the election to him was factually incorrect. That in point of fact, the majority of the white working class did not vote for Trump, but it was an immediately adjacent class, a kind of fragile element of the lower middle class that broke for Trump and broke strongly. Nonetheless, she also recognizes that since 2016, for every demographic group that does not have a college degree, black, Latino, white, even Asian, those groups are moving more and more toward the Republican column. It's not that they're voting overwhelmingly in favor, a majority, but fewer and fewer of them are voting for the Democrats. The margin that Democrats win among the Latinos and blacks and Asians is shrinking. And as that margin shrinks, the difficulty the Democrats face in the white working class becomes insurmountable. How will Joe Biden and the Democratic Party attempt to deal with this move to the right throughout the population? It's pretty obvious that Joe Biden is doing his absolute best to tell folks that he is for restoring 
middle-class lives for working Americans, that he is for good-paying jobs in decent work environments with real money attached, money that families can be built on, and that that is what he's striving to achieve. But how much of that can actually come to fruition by 2024 when Biden is up for re-election? The programs are massive, but getting that money rolled out is going to be a difficult assignment. Joe Biden can travel all over the country and announce groundbreaker after groundbreaker for factory after factory. But until the factories are up and running and hiring thousands and tens of thousands of people, people don't see a payoff. They see a person standing up and making yet another speech. Look, the next two years will not see a turnaround in the economic fate of two-thirds of Americans. But it can be a beginning. It can be a beginning if we double down on what we have done so far and continue the effort to improve the situation of America's middle class. Joan Williams, in my view, is the most forceful voice in the country on the importance of recognizing just how shabbily the two-thirds of us who never set foot in college have been treated for four decades. I want to thank Professor Joan Williams for spending time with us, and I also want to thank my producer, Anna Kumu, for her always excellent work. Next time, I'll be in conversation with Rana Faruhar, who's the assistant editor of the Financial Times and the author of the 2022 book, Homecoming. We'll continue the discussion of America's middle class. How did the American middle class fall apart since the 1980s? And we'll dive deeply into her views on how America can restore her middle class. I look forward to seeing you next time on The Political Conversation.